Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. And we're into extra time. Kia ora and welcome into the Extra Time podcast. I'm Clay Wilson and joining me this week are Joe Porter, Bridget Tunnicliffe and Hamish Bidwell. Well, the Black Caps will look to continue their big turnaround in fortunes when the second and final cricket test against India starts in Christchurch tomorrow. After the disaster that was the three-test series in Australia, things didn't get any better for New Zealand when they returned home, suffering a 5-0 defeat in their T20 series against India. At that point, it probably would have been difficult to predict where things sit now, with the Black Caps winning all three of those one days, and of course that dominant win in the first test at the Basin Reserve. Joe, I'll come to you first. What do you make of how this New Zealand team has been able to turn things around over the past few weeks? Well, I think largely helped by winning the toss at the Basin Reserve. I think that was probably one of the best tosses to win this whole summer for the Black Caps. It certainly made a big difference putting India out first on that track and rolling them for 160-odd or whatever it was. So a good turnaround. Obviously, they've got a little bit more confidence back home in New Zealand conditions. Perhaps they were just gun-shy in Australia. They just looked like a shadow of their former team, obviously, terrible preparation and some disruptions over there but yeah I mean nice to see them bounce back and obviously the, the T20s wasn't great that one day is, came back after a lot of the fans have started to write the black caps off of course coach Gary Stead taking that weird little bit of annual leave caught people off guard and a lot of fans weren't happy about that either but yeah first test match obviously a good result at the Basin Reserve Would have, nice to see it go the full five days especially with the weather playing ball once for once in Wellington um but yeah a good performance from the New Zealand pace bowlers to to really romp through that game before it had even begun yeah, that whole Gary Stead situation and how much was made of that seems a little bit funny now. Hamish, <laughs> um, I know we spoke about it a few weeks back after those eight losses and most of the concern at that point was still centred on that test series in Australia. What do you make of this first test? What the, the impact of that win is in terms of getting some sort of credibility back after what happened in Australia? Oh, just to be painful, I'm going to go back to that Stead thing. I think that was really significant. I think there was a bit of a niggle... Uh, being generated in the team about whose team it was. I think Stead mm-hmm. wanted to try and assert himself. And I think, apart from the Steve Ricks and John Graham era, when the Black Caps needed the naughty boys and they needed someone to sort them out, historically, the, the, the captain runs the team. It's his ship. Uh, they're like a club team because they, they don't play club cricket. They don't play much representative cricket. They play for the Black Caps, especially the three format guys. This is their team. And so mm-hmm. they get to run it. And so they should, I reckon. And I think Stead was overstepping his, his mark. And whether he wanted to go on leave or he was sent on leave, Either way, they started winning while he was away and the players were able to take control of the team again. And I think um, Joe's did right about the toss at the base reserve. That was significant. Mm-hmm. I mean, clearly, if it falls a different way at Hagley Oval tomorrow, we might get a different result. But I yeah. think behind the scenes, the fact that Williamson and, and people like Southie have been able to reassert themselves has been mm-hmm. important to the team. So, so, Hamish, you mentioned, and Joe, you mentioned about the toss as well. Do we put much stock on that first result? I mean, India are the number one team in the world. There was no Neil Wagner for the for the Black Caps, or was it simply a case of they won a they won a good toss on a pitch that was clearly favourable to to seam bowlers? No, certainly, but I think Hamish has probably touched on it just before with his insight into the Gary Stead situation. 
the fact that your sort of three senior seamers, Trent Bolt, Tim Southey, and, and you know, you've obviously got Neil Wagner coming back, but they were without him in Wellington, taking over ownership of the team again, getting back to the way things were when things were going successfully before, of course, they had these little run-ins with Gary Stead. Tim Southey and, and Gary Stead's run-in has been fairly well documented over in Australia. So perhaps perhaps that was a uh, that whole change of psychology the whole situation of feeling more comfortable and familiar in the roles that have been serving them well over the past little while and taking some of that control back gave them a little bit of impetus too. So what are you? Yeah, I think India's, India's run in great shape. Can I just come in there? I think like they're an opener short with Rohit Sharma being injured. He's been profit, uh, being really good in test cricket as an opener lately. And they've got a monstrous tail. Um, Rishabh Punt is, a, is, is erratic. And then um, Ashwin and the rest of the bowlers come back for time. At the moment, there's a suggestion they might bring in Ravi Jadeja to stiffen the lower order up. And New Zealand got great contributions from De Grandome, Jameson, and Bolt with the bat. And yeah. as good as Williamson batted, those runs at the tail were really significant in terms of giving them a first innings advantage. So India are not a particularly well balanced side at the moment, and that's that's an advantage for New Zealand as well. But I mean, they are the number one team in the world. They obviously suggest they've had pretty good results. I mean, you mentioned they don't have Robert Sharma here, but apart from him, there's not too many people missing. So I mean, they can't be that much of a rebel. No, I'm not suggesting they're a rebel, but they, they do very well at home. Um, they went to Australia a year or two ago, as we remember, and the wickets were really flat. They were almost Indian-like. They come here and they're doing a bit. Boomer's form's a bit down. I mean, if he gets, if New Zealand get put on a green one, he could be really dangerous, but he hasn't taken a wicket for a while. Um, and as I said, they, I think the fact that they do have a really long tail is an advantage for New Zealand. Um, they've got Shaw and Agarwal opening, and I don't think either of them are really that... Proven Agarwal's a few tests into it, and so sure Shaw's more of a stopgap. So I, I genuinely think that they have some vulnerabilities. And Coley looks tired. He looks a guy who doesn't want to work very hard for his runs. He just wants to come out and cream it, and uh, that's not going to work if it's nibbling around in New Zealand. So does all that then suggest you know New Zealand are, are favourites for this second test as well? It looks like it's going to be another seamer-friendly pitch. There's talk of New Zealand playing four seamers plus Colin de Gronholm. I mean, do we think a similar thing's going to happen here? Is this Indian team perhaps a little bit jaded and not quite where they have been over the past sort of 12 to 18 months? Do you think it's a mistake, Hamish, if they were to leave a spinner out of the side? Do you yeah, need one later absolutely. on at Hagley? 100%. Yeah. It's a hard one. I would pick a spinner every time. Yeah. But Williamson doesn't rate any of the New Zealand spinners. Um, he plays them under sufferance or because he has to on the subcontinent. But at home, they're the bowler of last resort. You know what I mean? He turns to them when everyone else is, is stuffed or there's a bit of time to fill before the next new ball's available. Do you know what I mean? So he, he doesn't have a lot of confidence in them. I think if you've got DeGrundheim plus the three main quickies and Jameson, that's excessive. You don't really need Jameson as well. It depends whether you want to toss up between Jameson and DeGrundheim, maybe even to be your, your, your bowling all-rounder. Um, but I would, I'd pick a spinner every time. But as I say, I don't think Williamson has any confidence in Patel as he didn't have an Astor and hasn't had in Somerville. So sort of a moot point. <laughs> I guess the history... Of- at this ground, though, doesn't suggest spinners have been awfully successful. When we saw what happened at the Basin, seam bowlers were good enough to do the job. So if it's going to be a seam-friendly pitch... I mean, I, I like having a spinner on the side as well, but perhaps, um, I don't know, history certainly doesn't suggest that the Hagley Oval pitch is that conducive to taking wickets with spin bowling. So I agree mate, with you to a point, but Joe Root and Jack Leach for England a couple of years ago were really effective, and New Zealand were really lucky that guys like Wagner and Sodi managed to hang on and bat out a draw but spin was really prevalent in that game and I don't see any reason why it shouldn't spin down there at all I mean Astor year after year has been a great punk at shield wicket taker playing predominantly on Hagley Oval so I would have thought it, it can turn OK well let's move on to the, the White Ferns now they're obviously in the thick of their 
campaign at the T20 World Cup in Australia. They had that good first up win over Sri Lanka, but then a loss last night to India in a match they probably should have won. Um, Bridget, do you agree after they restricted India to around 130, they perhaps should have won that game? Yeah, I think they were would have been pretty happy with uh, that that total. Um, yeah, it's it's a bit of a worry. Just looking back at their past two pinnacle events at the um, 2017 uh, ODI World Cup, um, uh, we lost to the Wifens lost to Australia, England, and India, and we were able, predictably, predictably were able to beat Sri Lanka, West Indies, and Pakistan. At the 2018-20 World Cup in the West Indies, we lost to India and Australia, but predictably we beat Pakistan and Ireland. But the thing is, we're, we're ranked in that top four grouping with Australia, England, India, but we can't seem to beat them at these pinnacle events. So that game against Australia on Monday, and they are in really hot form Australia, that's going to be everything. So that is a major hurdle for the White Ferns, is to be able to beat one of those top four countries. They'll be kicking themselves after that game against India. They dropped several catches mm. that really could have restricted the Indians even more and, and then failed to chase down a total. I think they'll be, they should be very disappointed in their performance against India, who were previously were still undefeated, but of course undefeated going into that game. And it would have been a good scalp for them. It would have put them right at the top of Group 1, uh, all but assured their place in the semi-finals. If they'd got over Bangladesh, they would have gone in. Now they have to beat, win these last two games, Bangladesh and Australia, to guarantee they'll go through, or hope for a miracle, a massive result against Bangladesh, and then a loss against Aussie and go through on run rate or vice versa. And then, look, I think the Australian way, the, the, the way they're going, their net run rate's going to be better. So really, the White Ferns have to win these next two games, and you can't help but get that feeling it's going to come down to a win on Monday night against Australia, and they'll bottle it. If memory serves me correctly, I think missed catches were a big issue at the, at the um, T20 World Cup a couple of years ago. And going into this tournament, Sophie Devine was asked what were the two major things that the White Ferns needed to achieve, and she said... Uh, one of them was fielding. They had to be so really sharp in the field, and she said catches win matches. So, yeah, that mm-hmm. could really bite them in the backside. In terms of Divine and Bates, do they have enough outside of that with the batting? They seem to have, in terms of the ball, a reasonable strength, but we saw Divine and Bates both failed against India in single figures. Do they have enough batting outside of that to be competitive? Is that where the crux of this perhaps lies? People like Maddie Green and Katie Martin had to take ownership for that result last night. They were in, they're experienced players. So, you know, Green plays in the, um, the Australian, uh, you know, league, 2020 league. So she she's not like a, a newbie or anything. Like they, if you're in and you're an experienced campaigner, you win that game. You don't leave it to Amelia Kerr. You know, sometimes your star players at the top, given the nature of 2020, are going to miss out. There's a lot relied on Priest, Divine and Bates, and sometimes they won't fire. But the ones who are run, the experienced campaigners like Martin and Green, they had to get them home last night, and they didn't. Good on Amelia Kerr for getting them so close, but they really had no right to be that close to the game and being lost before that. OK, and we'll see how things pan out tomorrow, and then perhaps a big crunch game against Australia, the hosts, on Monday. Looking at rugby now, well, it's round five of Super Rugby, but it seems as if there's more interest in what's being said and done off the field at the, at the moment. Of course, a big story this week, the Artie Sevilla story around him talking in two separate podcasts about going to rugby league. Hamish, you put together a column on this subject, and you're saying you'd be pretty ecstatic if he ended up actually doing it. Well, your full disclosure, I'm a rugby league enthusiast. I I write about rugby because it pays some bills, but I'm not a big rugby enthusiast, so I don't really care whether he plays rugby or not. Do you know what I mean? Like, it's got, I've got nothing in it. And I, I would admire him going for the reasons that he stated. If he wants to go to rugby league so he could play in 
international football for Samoa and represent his family and honour his parents and the sacrifices that they've made, then I'll, I'll do a cartwheel down the street because I reckon that's fantastic. It's a couple of years with great um, excitement and enthusiasm. And I, I want, I've been hoping that a rugby player of significance would say, actually, the all-black culture, which is, let's face it, still really rugby racing and beer. To a lot of extent, New Zealand has grown up and, and given away those attitudes. But Steve Hansen was the epitome of those things. The dudes that have come in to replace them are real traditional Kiwi blokes. Do you know what I mean? Mm. And our players aren't like that. They want something yeah. that reflects their culture, their heritage. And I think if that's what Savi is talking about, then I applaud it. Will it happen? Hard to see, but I, I, I would really applaud him if he did it. I can totally understand there must be this massive emotional pull for these um, Pacifica players who you come have that heritage to go and play for your home country. I can totally understand there's that pull. Um, I think it's interesting he's saying it now that he's thinking about it for something that he might do next year. Once you say something like that, you're going to get a whole lot of more questions and speculation about it. And this could last for a, another year. I'm wondering how soon can clubs in the NRL start approaching a non-contracted player? Is um, you know could he already be getting some phone calls like let's meet for a chat, have a to- have a coffee type phone calls, or is that way too soon? I don't yeah, know. Yeah, they sign them a year or two in advance a lot of the time now, so he could he could have a deal sign up for a week. Right. In terms of the like the ways the ways and the wherefores, I don't know that he has. But it, what I'm interested in again in Sabia is that we've got Bowden and Geordie Barrett off playing golf this week. I mean Bowden. Brand Bowden is amazing, and he's a great celebrity. Is he a rugby player anymore? Hard to say. You've got Retallick and Whitelock in Japan. Like Our leading players, bless them, don't really want to play. I think that, that speaks volumes. I, don't, I mean, I, I know we're all implored to get behind the teams that we follow or, or you know, watch games and stuff, but when our leading players would rather be doing other things, it's a real worry to me. In, t- in terms of having uh, not having Severe in the future, Joe, do you think that would be significant? I mean, the loose forward stocks are generally pretty strong in this country. It's a position where we seem to have a you know, a, a lot of depth in that area most of the time. Would it be that big a blow? I mean, h- how significant would it be if you did decide to do it? Oh, look, it would be significant for reasons outside of rugby. I don't think the All Blacks would lose a terrible amount or you know, the Hurricanes and all the rest of it. At the end of the day, he's one of the best players in the world, but they seem to come and go fairly quickly. On the roundabout, he's only an injury away from it all being over. I don't think, you know, in terms of the production mill or anything like that, having to replace one player and never being able to do it again, It'll be the be or an end all. I think it's more significant for the reasons that Hamish has mentioned. It would be a, a, it would sort of a signal a change in attitude for the players. You know, whereas that the war of the black jersey being an all black doesn't actually mean, necessarily mean as much as representing their pl- place of heritage, their their legacy, uh, and all the rest of that that comes with it. I think Hamish is right. There's a growing disconnect between the NZR and the head coaching, the management team there, and the players. Uh, the old pale white male stale thing going on with the coaching team and of course the ends of our board in general whereas you've got players who are largely from Pacifica and Māori descent they come from backgrounds that weren't necessarily showered in gold low socioeconomic areas they see the issues surrounding their friends and family and they no longer want to stay quiet and just take the money and tow the company line they want to use their position of privilege and platform to speak to these issues to try and address these issues Ari Savi has spoken before about how rugby is a business. There is no such thing as loyalty anymore. And there wasn't as soon as it became professional. As soon as you get money involved in anything, loyalty goes out the window. Do you think the All Blacks and Hurricanes wouldn't drop Savi if he couldn't play again? You know, of course they would. It would go. If he goes to somewhere else for more money, no one can call you a mercenary. It's, loyalty is gone. It is a business. Maybe it's just as, as simple and as cynical as Savi knowing his contract's up for a new next year and stirring the pot to create a few more extra zeros at the back of a contract. I mean, who, who knows here? But... If, if he went there for reasons 
like Hamish has mentioned, to represent his Samoan heritage and to do more off-field uh, activities, community work, which is what he seems to be into, then good on him. And it would, it would, again, be a significant moment for New Zealand rugby in the fact that there's become a disconnect, I think, between the players and management. Yeah, I think you're right. It's changing times, and I found and, it just... Uh, is leading that movement. You know, guys like TJ Petanara as well, and it'll just continue to become the case. And you'll see yeah. more and more of this stuff happening, and it's not a bad thing. I, or it's I potentially it. problematic, as they should be lining him up to be an All Blacks captain. He's that yeah. much of a leader. Oh, He's yeah. that influential among his peer group. So for someone yeah, who could sense. be the All Blacks captain to say, actually, thanks, fellas, but I'm off, um, that would be damaging a bit to That's the brain, right. I think. Mm, Absolutely. Yeah. yeah, I found it just as interesting, the fact that he was prepared to come out and say something like that so publicly, rather than actually just what he said in general. I mean, of course, it was interesting, but the fact that he would come out and say that, I'm sure there's been players in the past who have had similar thoughts, but were hesitant to say anything publicly. So it says a lot that he would come out and just say it anyway. Well, if you're on a rugby league player's podcast and he goes, hey, do you think you want to play rugby league? <laughs> oh, yeah, I think I might. That's one thing. But to go on a TAB podcast with another dude and say, hey, this is, I'm actually thinking about yeah. it, and this is why I'm thinking about it. Yeah, some intent behind it, yeah, perhaps. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, looking at another story that came across the desk this week in terms of football uh, banning headers in the UK for junior players at training. There's been some research floating around about former professional players being at more risk of dementia from hitting the ball. I mean, it's obviously such a big part of the game of football. What do we make of this decision? I mean, concussion and head injuries are such a big part of what we're dealing with here in New Zealand. Do we think it's uh, it's overblown, or are we surprised to see a decision like this? I think I read the I, I think I read the first couple of lines of the story. It said footballers are more likely to die from brain brain disorders. In the words, we're probably from headers. A major study reveals. Um, but I mean, what else would it be? I mean, I think it's. He, yeah, I mean, over the course of a 20-30 career of a footballer, they could be doing hundreds, um, including trainings, into the thousands of, of headers. And I think it's the accumulative effect that people are worried about. Um, it's just another thing for parents to worry about, isn't it? I mean, rugby concussions is one thing, and now you've got headers in football. Um, I just think... Um, from New Zealand football point of view, they just have to monitor the research and see how robust that research is and respond if they think it's appropriate. I've got a friend. I would normally poo-poo this kind of stuff. I've got a friend. He was a big strapping bloke, uh, played first 11 football uh, as a centre-half and then um, men's club football. And he, as a central defender, spent a lot of time hitting balls away at corners, up at halfway, hitting clearing kicks. And he got terrible concussion over and over again. And... He had to start, and when he first told me the story, I nearly died of embarrassment. He would, um, instead of hitting the ball, he would shoulder it with his left or right shoulder. He would, he trained himself to get his head out of the way and thump it with his shoulder. I just felt so embarrassed for him. He wanted the ground to swallow me out, but it's real. People get concussed. They have real bad, you know, I feel this, yeah, even now I'm imagining it, I feel a bit foolish. But, um, yeah, it's a, it's a real thing, and I think that player welfare in rugby, NFL, whatever we're talking about, we have to be conscious of because if you don't, you have to have people playing the game at lower levels so you can have it to pay for it at, at, at high performance levels. And increasingly, um, we have to make it safe for people to play. Hmm. Well, speaking of New Zealand football, uh, I caught up with Mark Fulcher earlier this week. He's the medical director for New Zealand football and the team doctor for both the All Whites and the White Ferns. I asked him about the decision made by these associations in Britain and, of course, following from what had been done in the US in 2015 as well. And he told me while he's not surprised to see it, current science alone doesn't suggest it's necessary. 
an area where there's been increasing interest stemming from a publication last year that showed former Scottish professional footballers were at an increased risk of developing brain issues over their lifetime. And that's on the backdrop of just an increasing interest in general amongst the, the public and the media and, and amongst scientists and doctors about the potential long-term impacts of head injuries and head impacts. Where are we at with it in New Zealand? And is it something that New Zealand football could follow suit with? I think the first thing to say is that globally, there is an impression that maybe hitting uh, the football has some negative impacts, but there's certainly no cause and effect uh, relationship that's been demonstrated. So these recommendations are a relatively common sense approach to this issue. Um, but at this stage, the science really doesn't say that this is something that we should be doing. And so at the moment, New Zealand football is monitoring the situation. We're monitoring research. We're kind of keeping abreast of what's going on. Um, but at this stage, we don't have any formal plans to follow suit. What's the research you're looking at telling you? Is it telling you similar things? Because as you noted, the particular research they used for this decision didn't make a clear connection between the likes of dementia and hitting the ball. So yeah. is it just a case of wanting more concrete evidence that there's a clear connection, or is it something that may happen if the evidence continues to stack up? The most important thing to say is that we're really keen to make sure that the game is safe and we're keen to make sure that we're looking after the participants. The second thing is if you look at the the cause of hospitalisation for kids who have head injuries, um, they're almost all falling off bikes, falling off jungle gyms. Playing football or organised sport is actually a very infrequent cause of brain injury. So young kids don't hit the ball very much anyway. The ball just doesn't get off the ground if you watch them play. Um, And so just really is not data to suggest that kids uh, hit the ball go on to get brain injuries. Um, There's data to suggest maybe um, professional footballers that played um, in the 40s and 50s um, and played for a long time at a professional level may have some negative health impacts in their later life. But the same studies show that those athletes had much better health outcomes until the age of 70. So they're less likely to get diabetes, less likely to get cardiovascular disease, There do appear to be some pros and cons, and I think uh, our position is that that playing football, being active, has overwhelmingly positive health benefits, um, and they likely overweigh at this stage any negatives from heading, from tackling and rugby, from those sort of uh, impacts that accumulate over a lifetime. We've seen this happen in the US a few years ago as well. They banned headers at a junior level for training anyway. Yep. Given that and given this decision out of the English FA, which is obviously a, a huge football nation, mm-hmm. would you suggest that maybe they're jumping the gun a bit perhaps if if there's no clear connection at this point? Well, I would suggest that they're making decisions that maybe are not necessarily directly related to the health outcomes. So I know the, the medical director of US soccer quite well, um, and a lot of that was around the medico-legal climate in the United States. Um, rather than a definite health benefit for the participant. So when you're looking at uh, changing rules, you want to make rules that are acceptable to the participants that don't change the fabric of the game. And I actually just don't think that these rule changes are going to have a huge impact on the game, but I also don't think they're going to have a huge impact on any health benefit. So they're kind of common sense rules, but do we need them? I'm, I'm not convinced personally. And that was New Zealand Football Medical Director Mark Fulcher telling me they have no plans to follow British associations and ban headers at training for junior players. And that's it for this week's edition of Extra Time. Thanks to Joe, Bridget and Hamish for their thoughts. And as always, thanks to you for tuning in. We'll catch you all next week.
Botox Cosmetic, out of botulinum toxin A, FDA approved for over 20 years. So, talk to your specialist to see if Botox Cosmetic is right for you. For full prescribing information, including boxed warning, visit BotoxCosmetic.com or call 877-351-0300. Remember to ask for Botox Cosmetic by name. To see for yourself and learn more, visit BotoxCosmetic.com. That's BotoxCosmetic.com.